If you haven't yet opened your Bible, open it up to Psalm 110 so that you can see for yourself what the Lord has to say to us. And let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather here this morning as a church. Thank you that you don't let your word return void. And the word of the Lord is not bound ever. Would you let your word run, run in our hearts, run in this city, run in this nation, that you would be exalted, that your son, Jesus, would be worshipped as our king and as our priest. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for sending your son to be all that we needed. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas. As we've been working our way towards Christmas these last few weeks, we've been opening up the Psalms. So Psalms are songs from the Old Testament. And the Psalms that we've chosen to talk about Jesus are all quoted in the New Testament. So the New Testament is written after Jesus comes. And all the psalms we've talked about, the New Testament quotes and says, these psalms tell us about who Jesus is. So all the psalms we've worked through were written before Jesus came, but they were written to help us understand who Jesus would be once he came. Listen to this. Psalm 110, the psalm that Sonny just read, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the most quoted of anything in the New Testament. The most quoted chapter by the apostles, which is incredible. It's only seven verses, and the apostles can't get over this psalm and what it tells us about Jesus. Now, one thing you'll notice when you read Psalm 110 is that if you take verse 4 out, it's very similar to Psalm 2, which we already studied. A conquering king is coming. All the nations are going to bow subject to him or be destroyed. Verses 1 through 3 say that. Verses 5 through 7 say that. But then right in the middle, in verse 4, we find out that the Messiah, the promised Savior, is not just a king. He's a priest king. And that makes all the difference for you and me. It does. Listen, if Jesus is only a conquering king who destroys his enemies, we're in trouble. Because you and I are all born enemies, and our sin further makes us enemies. So we need someone to reconcile us to God. And that's what our priest does. Jesus will bring down every last one of his enemies, and he will bring up every last one of his friends to God. That's what this priest king does. So we're going to talk about him as king first, and then we'll talk about Jesus as our priest. That's what we're going to do. King David wrote this psalm. He starts by telling us a prophetic word that he heard. So it's, it's almost like he's overhearing a conversation. This is prophecy. He hears God speaking to one of his descendants. 
the Messiah, Jesus. This is what verse 1 says. The Lord, that's Yahweh. The Lord says to my Lord, that's the future king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So footstool is what you put your feet on when you're sitting down. If your enemies are your footstool, they're beaten as badly as they can be beaten. And we've got a little ottoman, that's a footstool at our house, and it's the same upholstery as our couches, and it's dirty. It's the dirtiest thing among those upholstered things because everyone's feet go on it. If your enemies are under your feet, they are beaten as badly as they can be beaten. And that's the first thing we see in Psalm 110 about Jesus as our king. He will defeat every last one of his enemies. Verse 2 says he will rule in the midst of his enemies. Verses 5 and 6 say he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So verse 1 saying all his enemies will be his footstool, they'll be defeated, all of them. Everyone, this is what this psalm is telling us, everyone, and that might be you or me, everyone, man, Nations, governments, demons who are opposed to Jesus and everything, sin, sickness, and even death will be destroyed and placed under his feet. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. So 1 Corinthians 15 quotes these verses and listen to this. It says of Jesus, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Everything that resists Jesus will be defeated. Maybe you need to think about that if you find yourself here this morning as an enemy of God. Everyone and everything who opposes him will be defeated. Now, if you're a Christian... Get this into your head as well. When you feel scared of one of Jesus' enemies, when you feel afraid of one of Jesus' enemies, what they might do to you, how they might harm you, that may be a government, it might be another person, it might be sickness, it might be death. What's the worst they can do to you? Even death will be placed under his feet. That's really good news if Jesus is your king. The next thing Psalm 110 tells us about Jesus as king is that God fights for him. So look again at verse 1. The Lord, so God, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, Jesus, I will make your enemies your footstool. He's basically saying, you can sit down while I do it. God is the one fighting for the cause of Jesus. God is 100% about what Jesus is about. 
Now, if you've been with us at all as we've worked through the Gospel of John, you've seen this is one of the Pharisees' big problems in John. They think that they can have God and resist Jesus. They think that they can have God and minimize Jesus. They think that they can have a relationship, a good relationship with God and disobey Jesus. But if you resist Jesus Christ, you are resisting God. And that's why Jesus is so pertinent to every single person on this planet. Every single person you work with or live with. If you resist Jesus, you are resisting God. And that is the most dangerous position you could ever find yourself in. Because God is fighting for him. Not only is the Father fighting for Jesus, but Jesus is also one with God. That might be surprising, but that's another thing we see in this psalm. That's, That's something Jesus himself draws out of this psalm. He's one with God. Jesus quotes this psalm while he's teaching. He's talking specifically to the Pharisees, and he says, how can David call this future king his Lord if he's one of David's descendants. Let's look at our text here. Tried to pull it up. There we go. Jesus asked him a question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Follow Jesus' logic. This might be hard for Westerners, but it won't be hard for the rest of the world, I don't think. David, in his culture, would not call one of his children or grandchildren Lord. Filipinos, would you call your son or grandson Kuya? I hope the answer is no. The the illustration falls apart. You wouldn't call your son or your grandson older brother Kuya. It wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't make sense. Solomon had a larger kingdom than David. Solomon had more wealth than David. Solomon had more wisdom than David. David never would have called Solomon Lord. Because in this culture, you don't call your children or your grandchildren Lord. Jesus is asking the Pharisees, if the Christ is David's descendant, how is it possible that he would call him Lord? And here's the answer. Because... The Christ was not simply a human descendant of David. David knew the Christ would be more than just his son. The Christ is also God's son. God the son. He's one with God. And that's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees through Psalm 110. Our King Jesus is not just an ordinary man. Now, I want you to know, he is really a man. He really is one of us. But he is also God in the flesh. 
This psalm also tells us something about the servants of King Jesus. This is the last thing we're going to observe as we talk about Jesus as king. His servants love him. Look at verse 3. It says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So his, his enemies fear him, but his people love him. This verse is talking about his followers freely following him into battle. That's what it means when it's saying they're freely offering themselves to him to follow him into battle. You know the story of David and Goliath? So Goliath comes out every day and he stands in front of the armies of Israel and he mocks them and he mocks their God saying, fight me. And David shows up and he's blown away because no one is willing. Not a single person is willing to go fight Goliath, the enemy of God. Not one. And David is looking ahead and he's seeing that Jesus' followers will gladly, freely offer themselves up for his sake. Do you know what happened to the 12 apostles? Apostles, Jesus' earliest followers, all of them, from what we know of history, except for John, who was exiled, all of them lost their lives for the sake of Jesus. And countless others have followed them. If you think about the origins of different religions, most religions get their traction because someone who believes what they believe starts conquering other people and says, if, if you don't change your God, we're going to kill you. And lots of people say, okay, I'll change my God. That's not how Christianity started, not at first. For the first 300 years, followers of Jesus were saying, I'm willing to die for him. You can kill me, but I will not say he's not my Lord. I won't say, I won't say it. Because they love him. Because Jesus is the most worthy, satisfying person in the universe. Once you meet him, you know there's nothing that can satisfy your soul like he does. That's what all his followers knew. There is no cause worth living and dying for like his cause and his kingdom. There's no happier way to live your life. There's no happier way to lose your life than in his service. There's nothing more you need and nothing compares to Jesus. That's who our king is. And you can be satisfied by him because he's not just a conquering king. Like I said before, if he's just a conquering king who's out to destroy the enemies of God, that's us. But he's also a priest, which means he can take the enemies of God and make them God's friends. That's what our priest does. Let's talk about Jesus as our priest. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? In Genesis chapter 14, 
Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, meets this king. His name is Melchizedek. Melchi means king. Zedek means righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness. He's also the king of a city called Salem. Salem means peace. So he's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. That city, Salem, is probably the same city that will later be called Jeru-Salem. So you got the king of righteousness, the prince of peace. He's king over the city of Jerusalem. Does that sound like anyone you know? Sounds like Jesus. Genesis tells us that Melchizedek is also a priest, a priest to God. And he's such a great man that Abraham, the father of the Jews, I mean, if you were to ask a Jewish person, who's the greatest Jew? They would say, well, Abraham is. He's our father. Melchizedek is so great that Abraham gives him a tenth, a tithe. And Melchizedek blesses him. Now, Melchizedek's a mystery because he shows up and within three verses, he's gone. And we don't hear his name again until Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, God is declaring that Jesus will be like Melchizedek. He'll be a king and he'll be a priest. So what does a priest do? What's a priest's job? A priest is a person that God chooses to stand between him and his people. A priest is like a filter. So the priest makes the people's worship acceptable to God, and he makes God's holiness survivable for us. So when our, when our family first moved to the UAE, we only had two young children at that point. We flew into Dubai. We were staying at a friend's house. And the first night, we were getting our kids ready for bed. We set up a sound machine that we'd brought from the U.S. Now, a sound machine, it's an electronic device. It just makes a soft fuzz noise, like, so you can sleep and not hear anything else. Our kids had used it in the U.S. We thought, we're going to be dealing with jet lag. Let's bring this thing with us. We'll set it up for our kids. Maybe it'll help them sleep on their first night. Now, important to our story is that electronics in the United States run on 110 volts. Now, we knew the plug was different, so we had a little adapter. We stuck our adapter into the wall, and we stuck our American plug into that adapter, and we turned it on. And what happened? We didn't hear the soft whooshing sound of the sound machine. Instead, we watched as a puff of smoke rose to the ceiling, and we heard the soft sizzle of the inside of our sound machine being fried by the 230 volts that run through the outlets in the UAE. Now, you can use a 110-volt electronic device here if you have a converter. A power converter. So you can stick this converter into the wall and it will step down the voltage so that you can plug your electronic device in and it will deliver that power at an acceptable rate. If God lays hold of you without a converter, 
without a priest, his holiness will do to you what the UAE did to our sound machine. You might think you're big stuff, and many of us do. I could handle my own. If God wanted to ask me about my life, I could handle my own. I could tell him what's up. I do things pretty well. I'm doing the best I can. I could stand before God. But you cannot handle the greatness of God without a priest. You cannot lay hold of that kind of voltage and survive. You're a sinner. And if you were to walk into the energy of God's nuclear goodness without a converter, without a priest, you would be undone like our little sound machine. Jesus is the one who became a sinless man, one with God. He became one of us to stand between us and God. He makes sinners acceptable in God's sight. And he makes God's holiness accessible to sinners. He makes us acceptable. He makes God accessible. You can have access because Jesus is our priest. You have to have a priest if you want to come to God. And it has to be Jesus. It has to be. Let no man be your priest if he is not a God-man. But if he's your high priest, here are four things you get. Four things. This is what we're going to do with the rest of our time. Four things you get if Jesus is your priest. Now, all four things that I'm about to list, I took from somebody else's sermon. I took them from the sermon called the book of Hebrews. Some of you are like, I'm not plagiarizing. The book of Hebrews is one of the greatest sermons ever written. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Several chapters of the book of Hebrews are given to explaining what the priesthood of Jesus from Psalm 110 means for you. This is good news. I didn't sit in my office today and try to drum up four things that the priesthood of Jesus means for your life. These are from God. This is God saying in the book of Hebrews, this is what Jesus from Psalm 110 gives to you. So here they are, four things you get if Jesus is your priest. If Jesus is your priest, you get complete forgiveness. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So he's quoting Psalm 110 now, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the author of Hebrews is reading Psalm 110, and he notices that Jesus, our priest, is sitting down. Now, if you went to the temple 
and watch the Jewish priests. I've said this before. Do you know what you would not see them doing? You wouldn't see them sitting down. Because being a priest was manual labor. You had to kill goat after goat, after sheep, after sheep, after oxen, cut them up, arrange them on the fire. It was hard work. And the reason you couldn't stop, the author of Hebrews tells us, is because those sacrifices couldn't pay for a single sin. That's why they had to keep coming. But when Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and then he rose from the dead, he sat down. Which means it worked. He doesn't have to offer any more sacrifices for sin. Listen. If you receive Jesus as your priest and the sacrifice for your sins... Every single one of your sins is paid for. God holds none of them against you. Do you want that kind of freedom? There's amazing freedom that comes with knowing all my sins are gone. Amazing peace in knowing that God is not holding your sin against you. Your sins are cast into the sea. You can lay on your deathbed and know you will not answer in punishment for a single one of your sins. Because Jesus is that perfect of a priest. Here's the next thing that Jesus gives you in his priesthood. He gives you freedom from the law of Moses. You don't have to live under the law of Moses to know God anymore. This is Hebrews 7. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, so... Within Israel, there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi. They were the priests. Aaron, you'll see his name later on, Aaron was the head of the Levite priests. So, he's saying if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, if your sins could actually be forgiven, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He cannot be a priest under the law of Moses. Only the Levites could, but their priesthood couldn't forgive your sins. And so, God made Jesus our priest. And that means, this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us, 
that our law has changed. You don't have to live under the law of Moses anymore. Jesus has set you free from commandments about what you eat and drink, what clothing to wear, ritual washings, what calendar to observe, circumcision. We were going to talk about this a lot more tomorrow night during our Christmas Eve service. Jesus has set you free from that kind of external law keeping. Some of you need to hear this. If you come to Jesus, you don't need to keep all of those outward regulations. Some of you think that's what religion is. You do outward stuff. You wash in just the right way. You eat just the right foods. You avoid other foods. You cross yourself in just the right way. You bow the right number of times. Jesus has done away with that kind of religion. If he's your priest, here's what he's going to do to you. He's not going to give you a list of fasts to keep and feasts to keep. He's going to put his law inside your heart to make you love him and other people. That's the kind of religion Jesus brings to us. He changes us. That leads to the next thing that Jesus gives us. If Jesus is your priest, he'll give you change in your soul. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The former priests, the Levites, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. As a result, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely. He's able to save you in every way that you need to be saved if you draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Here's what these verses are saying. Because Jesus lives forever as a priest, like Psalm 110 tells us, he's always able to send God's help your way whenever you need it. You don't have to worry that he's not going to be there to send you help from God's right hand. In every way that you need saving, he can save you. Now, I don't think this is just talking about forgiveness for sins. I think it's also talking about changing you, cleansing your life from sin, the sin that's still there. We still need saving from that. Do you need to be saved from your anger? Your temper, your moodiness, your anxiety, your lust. He wants to help you. He's sitting at God's right hand to help you, to send you help. Have you asked him for help? You know, I mean, I was making a list right there. You know what you need saving from. And he is ready. That's why he's seated there to send help your way, to save you to the uttermost. That's what he wants to do as your priest. He'll send God's help your way to transform you. Here's the fourth thing Jesus gives if he's your priest. He'll give you confidence that when you pray to God, God wants you there. He'll give you confidence when you come before God in prayer that God wants you there in his presence. This is Hebrews 10. 
19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you ever try to pray and wonder, does God hear me? Is he irritated with me right now? Maybe you just sinned, and so you have the impulse to pray, and you feel, no, I can't, I can't pray right now. The door is locked. He's not going to let me in, and if he did, he would not be happy. If Jesus is your priest, then when you pray, God is glad. Hebrews is saying you can have confidence to draw near, to barge into his room. This is God Almighty. If you, if you woke up one morning and decided you needed to go talk to Sheikh Mohammed and you start driving to Abu Dhabi, if you get to his door, the best thing that could happen to you is that you would go to jail. You would end up seriously injured or shot. That's what happens. But if Jesus is your priest, you can approach God with confidence and he will gladly hear you. His work is so perfect. This is how perfect Jesus' work is for you. That you can open the door to God's room and God will never, never be upset to find out that it's you. He's such a perfect priest that our God is always happy when we barge in in prayer, in real, sincere, humble prayer. So draw near. That's the encouragement. That's where Hebrews is going when it talks about Psalm 110. Draw near, church. That's the gift Jesus has bought for you. It's what he gives for you in coming to earth as a baby at Christmas. He is your king, but he's your priest so that you can draw near to God with confidence. So draw near. If Jesus is your priest forever, then you can have God forever. He's the king who's a priest. This is who he came to be at Christmas. He's going to destroy all of his enemies. That's what he does as king. But he will bring all of those enemies who he has made God's friend through his priesthood. He will bring us all to God, perfect, clothed with his, clothed with his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for sending us a priest. We know that if we were to approach you, to lay hold of you, or if you laid hold of us without Jesus, we would be undone because your, holy, your holiness, your goodness is so powerful, so glorious, we could not survive. But Jesus, you, very God of very God, became a man to be our priest to die in our place, and to bring us to your Father. So thank you. 
Lord, would you help us now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper to honor you in our hearts, to draw near with confidence and joy. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.